Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 78, A New Helena. Thank you so much to all of you who've bought the sale episodes or the feed. I'm really, really grateful for your support. And if you've had any trouble getting your episodes, do email me right now. Don't wait any longer. So, last time on the free feed, we said goodbye to Constantine V, son of Leo III. Leo had saved the empire with his defense of Constantinople during the siege of 717. His son took advantage of the civil war in the caliphate to lead several successful campaigns to strengthen the empire's position in the Balkans, both by inflicting defeats on the Bulgars and dragging Syrian Christians to Thrace to settle the land. Constantine also took on his father's concerns about the misplaced worship of icons and had an ecumenical council dismiss them from the practice of Orthodox Christians. It was a decision which was resented by some amongst the clergy and monasteries, but was largely supported by the rest of the establishment and generally seems to have had little impact on those living outside of Constantinople. What you missed in the fundraising episode was the short reign of Constantine's son, Leo IV. The Abbasid caliphs resumed their annual raids on Anatolia, and Leo dealt with a couple of them with some skill. But he died suddenly, after five years in power, leaving his wife Irene to assume the role of regent for their nine-year-old son, Constantine VI. As far as anyone knew, Irene of Athens was chosen to be empress because she was beautiful, knew how to curtsy, and was from a family loyal to the emperor. What the world didn't know was that she was highly intelligent, capable, and ruthless. During the early empire, there was no question of a woman ruling, even for a short time. The Augustus was the holder of a significant collection of offices and had to appear before the Senate. Only a man could fill this role. Once the empire became more court-centred, there were occasions when women 
could exert significant influence. As they were now considered part of a royal house, it was understood that they might act as regent for a short duration. So, Elia Pulcheria, daughter of the Emperor Arcadius, claimed the regency for her younger brother when she was only 15. Or you may remember the case of Ariadne from the beginning of the History of Byzantium podcast. When Zeno died, she was asked to choose a new husband, and he would become emperor. This was a moment of real power, assuming she did make a free choice. But that situation demonstrates that, though her royal blood was valuable, it was not enough to allow her to rule alone. She married Anastasius, and he led the government. The same was true for Sophia, wife of Justin II. When he lost his marbles, she ruled in his place, but again quickly signed up Tiberius to become the new Caesar. So women could rule, but they just didn't do it alone, or for very long. It just wasn't done. Centuries of Roman prejudice and misogyny were reinforced by the fact that a woman was not allowed to become a soldier or a priest two of the major symbolic acts an emperor would perform were taking part in the Eucharist and leading troops on campaign. But of course, neither was required of the sovereign, and many emperors had sat on the throne while other men led their armies. Still, the practical obstacles facing Irene if she wished to rule on behalf of her son were immense. Historian Mark Witto sums up her situation well when he says, The previous female regent, Heraclius's widow Martina, had had her tongue cut out after less than a year in power. Irene's five brothers-in-law were all more likely potential rulers, especially as the threat from the Arabs was worsening year by year, and the elite guards regiment, the Tachmata, looked to an active male emperor to lead them. The existing hierarchy in the church, the army, the civil offices and the court had been created by her predecessors and owed her nothing. Irene was determined to rule alone. Doubtless the men of the palace advised her that a regency council should be formed, from which a suitable adviser could make the real decisions. But she would have none of it. She was going to make history and run the government herself. Aside from her wits, the Empress had two things in her favour as she began this daunting task. The first was that she had been living in the palace for 12 years and knew the place inside and out. For the first seven years, she had been an imperial princess but for the last five she'd been the Augusta, and had cultivated relationships with many of the key ministers in the government. The men she knew best were all eunuchs, which of course makes sense. During the fundraising episode, I described the various rituals which an empress in training would have to go through. Whenever a man was needed to instruct her, it would be a eunuch who was sent. Only eunuchs of the palace's male employees were allowed to move in and out of her private apartments. Many of these men were not functionaries. 
They were career bureaucrats, men of ability, who had risen because of their skills. Not only did she know them, but she trusted them. They would feel no shame in serving a woman, and many of them would owe their career advancement to her alone. Irene would promote eunuchs to the highest positions of government, and they would reward her with an efficient and obedient bureaucracy. The second advantage she had was an oath of loyalty that the elite had made to her son, Constantine VI. This was also covered in the fundraising episode. Leo IV had realised that having five half-brothers hanging around the palace was a dangerous situation. So he'd gathered the leading men of the empire to swear to uphold his rule and that of his son. His five brothers were not to share in the imperial succession. These sons of Constantine V were always going to be rallying points for discontent. Already an attempt had been made in favour of Nicephorus, the second eldest of the five. Leo had slapped down that conspiracy and stripped his brother of his imperial titles. But how long would it be before another attempt was made, now that Leo was dead? Six weeks is the answer. As soon as the 40-day mourning period was over, a plot was uncovered to again elevate Nicephorus to the position of emperor. Senior men were implicated. Two generals, an admiral, and the postal logothete. When Irene gave the order to have the conspirators arrested, the palace guards obeyed. They had sworn to protect Leo's son, and so they would. The empress had the men flogged, and exiled to various monasteries. She knew her position was still in danger, though. In a way, she was lucky that it had been an attempt to pick a new emperor, because if instead it had just been about replacing her with a new regent, the men of the palace might have acquiesced. She had to act against the five brothers. Their names had been attached to a coup attempt. She couldn't have them killed or exiled without the risk of being overthrown herself, yet to leave them unpunished would be a sign of weakness. Demonstrating her cunning and her understanding of the importance of ceremony, she had her five brothers-in-law ordained as priests. This made them technically ineligible to become emperor, but was not seen as a cruel demotion. What was particularly clever was that it was now November. She appointed them to posts around the capital, but on Christmas Day, with the Hagia Sophia packed out, she had them serve communion to her and her son. In front of the most powerful families in the capital, the Empress made it clear to all that she would rule in her son's name, and that everyone now answered to her. With this political theatre out of the way, and spring 781 approaching, Irene had to deal with the realities of life as ruler of the Byzantine Empire. An Arab invasion force was crossing the Taurus Mountains, and another general rebelled against her rule. This was the Stratigos of Sicily, 
who was fairly easily chased away after a year and his troops brought back into line. However, there was more discontent in the air. Irene feared the power of the Empire's senior military commanders. They held the potential to overthrow her, and as she couldn't lead an army herself, she relied on their cooperation. With the Arabs on the march, she decided to turn again to her eunuch administrators. She appointed the Sacularios John to take temporary charge of the forces defending Cappadocia. Irene didn't want one of the existing generals to win a great victory, nor did she want to sack them and risk rebellion. So by giving John temporary power over them just for one campaign, she avoided this problem. This seemed to work for now. The theme troops delayed the Arab advance, and Michael Lachanothrakon, the experienced commander of the Thracisians, was able to defeat a detachment which had made its way further west. However, the seeds of discontent bloomed the next year when the Arabs returned. The Caliph al-Mahdi had seen his forces frustrated for three campaigns in a row now. So in spring 782, he outfitted a giant invasion force, allegedly 90,000 strong, but even half that would be massive. The Arabs marched deep into Anatolia, aiming to raid the Asian suburbs of Constantinople. The various theme commanders readied their men for the defence, but again Irene announced that a eunuch would be given overall command. This was Stavrakios, Irene's closest advisor and essentially chief minister. This decision was not popular with the themes, who could see that if you weren't one of Irene's men, then your career was going nowhere. The main body of the Arabs raided all the way to Chrysopolis, but as they began heading home, Stavrakios' forces trapped them in the valley of the Sangarius River. This was a tense situation, because amongst the invasion force was the caliph's young son, Harun al-Rashid. However, one of the Byzantine armies blocking their retreat was the new theme army of the Bacalarian. Their commander was an experienced general and native Armenian, Tatsatis. Tatsatis had been well rewarded under Constantine V's rule, but now feared that Irene was going to replace him. So he contacted Harun and offered to help him escape, if he was properly rewarded. Harun agreed, and so Tatsatis sent word to Stavrakios that it was safe to come forward and negotiate for peace. The eunuch left his camp and came forward without taking any of the precautions that would normally accompany such negotiations. For example, an exchange of hostages. Instead, he walked unarmed into the Arab camp and was promptly put in chains. Instead of negotiating from a position of strength, Irene was forced to pay what amounted to a ransom demand. She handed over 2,222 pounds of gold in exchange for her chief minister, but she did get a truce agreed as part of the deal. One historian estimates that this was a tenth of the state budget. In many ways, this was a humiliation for the new regime, but the result was not so bad. 
The Empress could blame the fiasco on Tatsartes, and no other army rebellion took place. She now had peace in the east as well, so could turn west to look for easier military glory. Stavrakios was clearly a man the Empress trusted more than any other. Instead of punishing him for his defeat, he was immediately given the chance to reform his reputation by leading a campaign into the Balkans in 783. It was the obvious place to gain the kind of victories needed to show that God favoured Irene's regency. Having grown up in Athens, Irene may have had specific targets in mind, as she ordered her chief minister to march past Thessalonica and into Greece proper. Stavrakios made no mistake this time. He cowed the tribes who would not pay imperial taxes and easily won the few engagements which were necessary. He returned as a sort of conquering hero and enjoyed a triumph to show off his spoils to the people. The eunuch had also been preparing the ground for Irene to go on campaign herself. She couldn't be seen to lead an army, so the plan was for Stavrakios's forces to check the coast was clear, and then for Irene to lead a sort of victory parade around Thrace. And that's exactly what she did the following year, 784. She and young Constantine headed out with an army, but were also joined by a travelling orchestra. The noisy troop would attract the attention of everyone in the Thracian countryside, who came to Gorp at the imperial entourage. The message was, Roman power is back in Thrace, and Irene is responsible for this wonderful news. Along with the musicians came engineers and workmen. The promised return of Byzantine influence was not based solely on the sound of music. The procession headed for the abandoned city of Veria, spelt with a B on your map, and refounded it as Irinopolis. Then they moved on to Anchialis on the coast to repair its fortifications, after the battering it had taken during Constantine V's wars. Finally, they headed as far west as the city of Philippopolis, all the time greeting local people and preparing the ground administratively for imperial control to be fully resumed. Constantine V's battles with the Bulgars had made this reincorporation possible, but it was Irene who followed up that work and began to really reclaim Thracian land for the empire. Though winning friends in Thrace was nice, the Empress knew that she needed more impressive allies if she was to secure the future for herself and her son. She decided to look west for the kind of legitimacy she craved. In episode 75, I talked about how the loss of Ravenna and the Pope's alliance with the Franks was the effective end of Byzantine influence in the north and centre of Italy. But though with hindsight we know that to be true, that was not the feeling in Constantinople at the time. Irene in particular felt that relations with the Franks and the papacy were very important. Charlemagne's destruction of the Lombard kingdom in 774 had surprised and alarmed the Byzantines. 
their possessions in the south of Italy and around the future Venice were now under threat. So early on in her reign, Irene sent a deputation to King Charles asking if he'd like to marry his daughter Rotrude to the future emperor Constantine VI. Charlemagne was pleased with this honour and agreed, and for now that should ensure peace between the two realms. As for the Pope, Irene took seriously the fact that both the Pontiff and the Eastern Patriarchs had all condemned the Ecumenical Council of 754 as illegitimate. They did not agree with the reasoning which had dismissed icons as idolatry and considered the Byzantine Church to be in error. This was an opportunity for the Empress. As we've seen so far, there was little real opposition to Constantine V's anti-icon council from within the empire. Some churchmen and a few monasteries certainly objected, and there may have been those who privately disapproved, but in public, the vast majority of churchmen and laymen accepted the decisions of the council. The issue of icons doesn't seem to have aroused passionate feeling one way or another. Though it's impossible to prove this, my suspicion is that for your average farmer out in Anatolia, the council made no difference whatsoever. If they kept icons in their home, then they carried on praying to them regardless. And doubtless, many didn't use icons, and so all of this was irrelevant to them. So, if Irene could manoeuvre carefully, she had an opportunity to play the great stateswoman who reunited the church. Domestically, this would not only impress the masses, it would also force the powerful men of the church to publicly show their loyalty to her. She'd already got the bureaucracy under firm control, and was keeping the army at arm's length. This could bring some very important members of the establishment into her camp. This sort of political calculation is not what Theophanes records as being her primary motivation. No, he claims that she loved the icons with devout piety. Her firm belief that the icons must be restored was always at the core of her character. Well, as you know, this is a later reading of her actions, trying to fit them into a narrative of iconoclasts versus iconophiles. Some historians have argued that women were more attached to the icons than men, the logic being that women were drawn to the direct access to the divine which icons allowed, as opposed to church services where everything was mediated by men. But this is conjecture. The chances are that Irene was pro-icon. She certainly doesn't seem to have believed that they were idolatrous. But as we will see from the rest of her time in power, piety was never her guiding star. Organising an ecumenical council was a complicated business. So Irene did as she always did. She turned to one of her trusted palace advisers to take on the task. This was Tarasius, who had won Irene's favour in the same role that Artemius the secretary had performed 
before the latter became emperor. According to Theophanes, the sitting patriarch, Paul, suddenly fell ill and voluntarily relinquished his post. Now, we don't know, but a natural conclusion to draw would be that Irene sent word for him to make his excuses and leave. She wanted Tarasius in charge of this giant but delicate operation. Tarasius wasn't a priest. <laughs> he wasn't even a deacon. So Irene set up a carefully stage-managed meeting in the palace to discuss who should be the new patriarch. His name was put forward, he feigned surprise, and then everyone agreed what a good choice he would make. Tarasius, of course, said he could not become head of a church in schism, and asked that a general council of the church be held to bring everyone back together. Well, that was neat, wasn't it? Thanks to the truce with the Arabs, representatives from the Eastern churches were allowed to make their way slowly over to Constantinople, while Pope Hadrian agreed to send delegates. The pontiff was not jumping up and down with joy, though. In his reply, he noted that he was not happy that Tarasius, a layman, had been appointed patriarch, nor did he like that his title was still ecumenical patriarch, i.e. a head of the pope in the official hierarchy. He also wanted his revenue back from southern Italy and his jurisdiction over Illyricum and Sicily restored. Well, Irene chose to remain silent on those thorny issues and focused instead on rolling out the red carpet to make the delegates feel otherwise that all was well. Bishops and clergymen from across the empire gathered in the capital in the summer of 786. Trusting Tarasius and hoping to lend the council an air of independence, Irene and Constantine were out of the city, again touring Thrace. This turned out to be a mistake. The absence of imperial power allowed groups of bishops to get together and discuss the issues of the day. Constantine V's council had been held in 754, over 30 years earlier, so many of the bishops who'd taken part in those debates had since passed away. But some hadn't. Some were arriving in the capital now, unhappy that their work was going to be overturned. Others had agreed with the spirit of that council once they became bishops and had discouraged the representation of Jesus and the saints in their provinces. These men got together in the houses of the capital and made plans on how best to wedge a spanner in the works. And they were not alone. Another group in the city resented the announcement that Constantine V's ecclesiastical policies were being reversed. These men came from the institution which he had created, the Tachmata. The elite units of the empire were very loyal to the memory of Constantine. He had, after all, led them to multiple victories and allowed them to march in triumph through the streets of the capital. Irene arrived back in the city just as the first session was held in the Church of the Holy Apostles. An hour or two into proceedings, and soldiers arrived outside, demonstrating loudly. Eventually, a group of them got inside, and with swords drawn, told the assembled clergy that it was time to stop. The iconoclast bishops amongst the gathering 
joined in the protests and shouted down Tarassius and his aides. Irene was furious when word reached her, but due to the strength of the opposition, she announced that the council was to be abandoned. The delegates, some of whom had travelled hundreds of miles, trudged out of the city. This was a dangerous moment for Irene. Again the army had turned against her, and a humiliating climb-down had followed. But the Empress was not defeated, nor would she be. A couple of weeks later she announced that the Arabs were on the loose in Anatolia again, and that the army must march out in force to confront them. This was plausible, as the truce had been broken earlier that year. But it was September, right at the end of the campaign season. Still, no one doubted the Empress's intentions because the imperial baggage and tents were being dragged out of the gates and towards Maligna, the nearest military camp on the road east. It cost a lot of money to move this equipment out of the city, and so it seemed that Irene or Constantine would be accompanying the Tachmata on campaign. The elite units of the army gathered their gear and followed the Empress's furniture out into Anatolia. In the meantime, though, Irene sent Stavrakios out into Thrace, where the army that she'd taken on tour was still stationed. Some of these men were experienced theme soldiers who'd been brought over from Anatolia in case of any trouble with the Bulgars. The eunuch asked these men how they would feel about a pay rise and relocation to the capital. They heartily agreed, marched into the city, and were inaugurated as the newest members of the Tachmata. The old Tachmata now arrived at Maligna, and were surprised to find contingents of theme soldiers armed and aiming their weapons at them. The theme commanders told them to lay down their arms and submit to the authority of the Empress. In a most Game of Thrones moment, the men of the Tachmata were told that resistance was futile. Not because rebellion was unthinkable, nor because the theme troops believed they could easily defeat them, but because their wives and children were living back in the capital now under the watchful eye of their replacements. The Tachmata yielded. About 1,500 of them were released from service and told to return to their home provinces. Their families would follow, unharmed. The rest were either reassigned or returned to the capital with a newfound respect for Irene. The Empress had pulled off a most magnificent coup. She now had a military establishment that owed more to her than her predecessors. She sent out the word to the dispersed delegates. The Ecumenical Council was back on. Determined not to be embarrassed again, the Empress moved the Council to Nicaea, nearby in Anatolia, and of course the site of the first Ecumenical Council over 400 years earlier. This fit very nicely into her propaganda. She was more than happy for the comparison to be made that her son might be a new Constantine I 
and she, his pious mother, a new Helena. The church the council would meet in, the Hagia Sophia in Nicaea, still stands today, and you can see pictures of where Tarasios may have sat during proceedings on the website and on Facebook. As the delegates regathered, Tarasius deposed a few of the bishops who'd been involved in the protests, but others were left in their positions and given the chance to publicly apologize for their behavior. This was another slick bit of politics from Irene's camp. Those of an iconophile persuasion were obviously going to support the Empress's plans, but now she had a chance to offer her shield of protection to some of the iconoclasts. They would now owe their jobs and livelihoods to her forgiveness. Bureaucracy, army, church. All were learning to bow before Irene. The empress stayed in Constantinople during proceedings, but Tarasius was backed up by several important officials, including the commander of the Obsikion, just in case persuasion was needed to keep the gathered churchmen on track. The council finally began proceedings in September 787. Tarasius's goal was to heal the rifts within the church, find a consensus on various issues, and get the whole enterprise finished before any other disturbance could strike. The first session was the most contentious, as it had to deal with those bishops who had broken up the council the year before. Men who'd followed their consciences in objecting to the council now followed their wallets. The thought of being sacked, disgraced, and disinherited was too much, and they came forward to ask for forgiveness. There were those who objected to this and wanted to refuse them, particularly some very pro-icon monastic groups. But Tarasios pushed forward with reconciliation against their objections. It wasn't just the collapse of the initial meeting that Tarasius had to deal with. He also had to get everyone assembled to accept that Constantine V's council had been a mistake. This was tricky because the church very rarely admitted to being in error. God was, of course, infallible, and so human scapegoats had to be found. The second and third sessions were all about church unity and getting the delegates from Italy and the East to agree on the indivisibility of the church and place themselves back in communion with one another. Only in the fourth session did an actual discussion about icons begin. And this is where the rewriting of history really begins in earnest. You see, Constantine V's argument was that worship showered on the icons was a form of idolatry. Now, whether you agree with that or not, it was certainly true that the Bible outlawed the worship of objects. This gave the iconoclasts a strong logic to work from. They worshipped the Trinity and did not want to anger God by offering praise to anything else. The iconophiles didn't really have a biblical argument to support their position. Icons had only really come to prominence in the last couple of centuries, so obviously there was no mention of them in the Holy Scripture, nor any comment on them from the great church fathers of earlier centuries. 
But Tarasius had to find a way to show that icons were an established part of church tradition. Because rather than tackle Constantine V's arguments theologically, the patriarch intended to show that they were an innovation. Today we think of innovation as a positive term. It implies new and better ways of doing things. In Roman times, innovation was often seen as a deeply negative thing. It suggested the meddling with practices which had served people well for generations. In Christian circles, innovation almost certainly meant heresy, a break from the tradition which had preserved the truth since the time of Jesus. Tarasius presented iconoclasm as such. Before Leo and Constantine, everyone had venerated the icons. It was an established part of church life, and the emperors had foolishly attacked it. As you know, this was not really true. Icons were a relatively recent phenomenon, and whether you offered them veneration or not seems to have been an entirely personal choice. But in order to dismiss the iconoclast case, Tarasios and the assembled clergy agreed that icons had always been a part of church life, and thus removing them was a false innovation. The patriarch presented a carefully planned selection of evidence from eyewitnesses, hagiography, and church writings to make this case. This included using texts which had been mentioned at Constantine V's council and recontextualizing them to show that they actually supported the use of icons. In the sixth session, he went further, tearing apart the conclusions of Constantine's council, and it's from this that we have a record of what was actually said back in 754. This rewriting is why the literature of the iconoclasts needed to be destroyed, because it contradicted the argument that icons had always been around. This whitewashing of history was not seen at the time as a giant conspiracy. It was merely an expedient to get as many people present to agree to the formulation as possible. The fact that the assembled churchmen agreed to overturn 30 years of church life suggests that the icons really weren't the emotive issue that they seemed to be in the histories. As you know from the podcast, when an issue of faith went deep, like, say, the Monophysites, you couldn't get Christians to budge an inch. But in the case of the icons, the Byzantine clergy seemed pretty flexible about what their official position would be. The seventh and final session saw the declaration of this new Seventh Ecumenical Council read out and signed by all those present. Both our recent historians, Nicephorus and Theophanes, were there. Nicephorus was working for Irene's government, while Theophanes was head of a prominent local abbey. The declaration stated that icons and other representations of holy figures were on a par with the cross. They were symbols of the faith that should be revered. They inspired believers to remember the figure being represented, and therefore they should be venerated. The wording was clear that this veneration did not match the true level of worship reserved for God alone, but that to refuse to honour the icons was now a crime and a heresy. As modern historians point out, 
The Council of 787 was thus a true innovation. It was creating a formal cult of images that hadn't existed before. The whole council took less than a month to complete. Contrast that with the six months that it took for the 754 meeting to debate all of its issues. Tarasius had planned everything out carefully and kept debate to a minimum to ensure that Irene would get what she wanted. And she did. The delegates from East and West toasted her for bringing the Orthodox together again. The iconophiles were firmly on her side, and the Empire's ecclesiastical establishment had all shown her support and deference by accepting this change of policy. The Augusta had shown herself to be a strong stateswoman, and felt confident enough to place herself on the Empire's coinage for the first time. Up to this point she had minted coins, with young Constantine on one side and his three predecessors on the other. Now she appeared alongside her son on the front of the coin. Irene had ruled for seven years now. She'd enjoyed it tremendously. Despite the various rebellions and setbacks, she had continued to manipulate the men around her with great skill. Legitimacy, that precious, elusive quality, was transferring, against all odds, to her. There was only one problem. Her son, Constantine. He had turned 16 earlier that year, and his 17th birthday was only a few months away. Men had already become emperor at earlier ages, and he was now agitating for his inheritance. Next time, mother and son will come into conflict for the right to rule. But sadly, in Byzantium, there can only be one Vasilevs. Thanks again for buying the sale episodes, and do email me at thehistoryofbyzantium at gmail.com with any problems. And keep your end-of-the-century questions coming too. We're getting close. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.